Do you guys remember um, two weeks ago, I guess, when I spoke, I had some of those statistics. Um, and so the first one that was said as the barrier to faith for Gen Z was, I have a hard time believing that a good God would allow so much evil and suffering in the world. And so that's what I'm going to be talking about. So you guys shouldn't be scared. I'm the one that should be scared because it's very hard to talk about. Um, so my title today, if you want to write it down, is The Goodness of God. Yeah, take notes because hopefully um, you'll get to take away some stuff from this. The goodness of God. Um, yeah, and honestly, like, it's common, I know, like, in that statistic from Barnard Research, like, it was common as a barrier to faith, and I'm sure not just Gen Z, but it was a barrier to faith to Gen Z, but it's common, like, inside and outside the church, like, even inside the church, like, a lot of us have these thoughts, and it doesn't mean, like, we're abandoning our faith, it's just, like, something that we have a hard time, like, dealing with, like, it's something that is hard to wrap our mind around, and, um, I mean, honestly, like, this whole topic, the debates are, like, deep. Like, you could spend a long time talking about this, and the answers are, like, like elusive. Like, they're hard to pin down. They're hard to, like, actually definitively, like, um, really talk through this um, without someone coming back with a counter-argument, and you're just, like, sitting there forever. I mean, a lot of times, things that are hard to debate are like that. And so um, I'm going to try to um, do my best to kind of go over this with you guys because um, I know often some people like to just bury their head in the sand um, and just not think about it. And that is the easiest way. I mean, obviously, like you just don't think about it. But sometimes when life gives you lemons... Uh, you uh, you have to think about it. Sometimes, like you don't have an option to ignore um, this question, this evil and suffering and things happening in the world. Like sometimes you're confronted with it in your life, and so sometimes you can't run from it. Um, and so my goal tonight is just to give you some ammunition for ways to think about it. Um, to um, just some defense um, for your own mind, and even when you're talking to other people, to give you, take you maybe, a, like, don't think of this as, like, the ultimate answer to this question, but just getting you down the path so maybe you're a little bit deeper, because honestly, I wish I had more revelation and more into this whole topic, but I'm going to do my best to lay out um, what I know, so give me grace and all that. So, um, this common, this is such a common uh, problem that it has its own name. It's called the problem of evil. It's its official name in theology, and um, and the uh, the argument goes like this: a perfectly powerful being can prevent any evil. A perfectly good being will prevent evil as far as he can. God is perfectly powerful and good, so if a perfectly powerful and good God exists, there will be no evil. There is evil, therefore God doesn't exist. So that is the argument. One, 
one through six. Like that's there. That's there's six steps to that argument. So I, I mean, I'm going to talk about this whole thing, and so, um, you know, there's. Like this is a lot of people like have heard even these steps like through this argument because it is um, popular, um, like it's known, and you know hard things happen in people's lives, and like we have these questions and we have these unanswered things, and like you get in situations where like your say your brother gets you know a de degenerative disease and dies in his early teens. You know, like, where is God in that situation? Or, you know, you, you and your mom are, you know, struggling with physical abuse because your father is, you know, an alcoholic. And when he gets drunk, he's just, his anger comes out and you're being physically abused. And it's like, where is God in that situation? Or when you look at natural disasters and you look at, um, or just things that happened like in China um, in the 90s, 7.8 magnitude earthquake happened while they were asleep and half a million people were killed. Or you look at, um, you know, Germany who um, committed genocide and killed, systematically murdered 6 million Jews. We know that as, well, yeah, something like that, six or seven, the number I looked up was six. But you, you think about these things, and it can be hard. It can be hard to stomach. It can be hard to walk through all this stuff. And that's why it's a hard topic. And that's why it's hard for me to talk you through this. And so, you know, how do we deal with these, thing, these things? And like, how is our faith when things isn't, things aren't so peachy? They aren't just like so great, you know, when things happen in the world and things are bad. And so, um, yeah, I'm going to do my best to walk you through this. And so um, my, f my first thing I want to talk about, so I have... Um, Hopefully I can get through this not too long. I have a lot of stuff. I actually had to cut down to like a quarter of this message because there was so much I could have talked about. Um, but so we're going to first talk about um, free will. And so there's, first sec there's a first category of evil. So typically they break up um, in two. So you have moral evil, which is us humans making choices that are bad. Think of Hitler, like he made bad choices and they affected millions of people. You think of um, natural evil, which is like natural disasters, stuff like that. So, huh? Wasps. wasps, yes, like wasps when they sting you, that's evil, it's bad, innately bad. <laughs> All right, um, so um, moral evil, is basically this whole idea of free will, um, just to give some backing on this, is linked back all the way to the fifth century to St. Augustine, who was a, um, like one of the leaders of the churches. Um, and 
it was called Hippo, which I think was a part of Rome and stuff. So it's way back then, and he wrote about this stuff. And so basically, it's that free will is the price we pay, you know. If we have evil because we have free will, but we have love because we have free will. Does that make sense to you guys? Because like, if you didn't have free will, you couldn't choose to love God. There's no genuine real love without a real choice. And so moral evil is a lot of times can be explained in that way that people make choices and they have the freedom to do that. And those choices end up doing really bad things to other people. And um, so a lot of times like that, um, you know, is the argument. And then the counter argument that you will hear from this um, to just give you guys some ammo on that is a lot of times people say like, well, won't the same thing happen then again in heaven? Because we all have free will there. You know, we all get to heaven and then this, it's like, a, the, you know, same thing happens again. Um, and the, really, um, the belief is there is that we will be restored to the state of the garden and Satan will not be there um, to deceive us and to lead us down to the path of sin. Because Adam and Eve didn't have a sin nature that we have now, but they were deceived into sin and Satan won't be there um, to deceive us into sin. Um, and so, um, anyways, so that is kind of like to be aware of that. But, um, and so the hard part about that whole topic is that free will does not negate God's sovereignty. And do you guys know what the word sovereignty means? You might not. It's a pretty big word. Sovereignty basically just means that God is in control. So, God's, that the fact that he's in control, that doesn't change just because we have free will. Like he's in control, even though we have free will. You have a question? Like the definition of sovereignty, is it like, like just God has control or like somebody has control? Um, it's basically just somebody has control. But it's typically described as uh, like God is sovereign or God's sovereignty. Like you'll hear it, um, um, combined like that. So yeah, it means basically ultimate authority, ultimate say, like they're like, you know, they're all powerful, in control, know what's going on and can change what's going on. Um, so, so let's break down this argument a little bit. Um, so in the premise of this argument, the power, the problem of evil um, it says, basically, a perfectly good being will prevent evil as far as he can. And that is a premise of this whole argument. And if that isn't true, then the whole God does not exist thing whole totally breaks down on this argument. And um, we can't deny that, um, that God is powerful and that he can prevent evil. And, um, but we can deny that he will prevent evil because God um, basically it comes down to the fact, the argument that there is, can be greater good in the midst of evil. Um, and so basically, 
let's look at Job. So Job, um, I'm going to read a summary um, that I wrote of his life um, because I don't have time to read 40-something chapters to you. And so... Um, no, we're not going to Job. I have too much to go through to um, do it, so I'm just going to give you a summary. J-O-B, Job, but it's pronounced Job. Yeah. Job is a wealthy man living in the land of Uz, Uz, with his large family and extensive flocks. He is blameless and upright, the Bible says. Always careful to avoid doing evil. One day Satan appears before God in heaven. God boasts to Satan about Job's goodness. But Satan argues that Job is only good because God has blessed him abundantly. Satan challenges God that if given permission to punish the man, Job will tone and curse God. God allows Satan to torment Job to test his bold claim, but he forbids Satan to take Job's life in the process. In the course of one day, Job receives four messages, each bearing separate news that his livestock, servants, and ten children have all died um, due to invaders and natural catastrophes and stuff. And Job tears his clothes and shaves his head in mourning, but he still blesses God in his prayers. Satan appears in heaven again, and God grants him another chance to test Job. This time, Job is afflicted with horrible skin sores. His wife encourages him encourages him to curse God, to give up and die, but Job refuses. And it's really a crazy story. Um, and there's a lot more details in this story, but Job goes through it, man. And it's pretty incredible that he's so faithful to God. Like he, he's never not honest, like he, and he never doesn't show his emotion. Like you see when he tears his clothes and shaves his head in mourning. Like he is devastated. Like he's not like, oh, everything's okay. It's fine. I don't care. Like it's fine. Like he was devastated, but he refused to curse God, to give up on God. Even though his circumstances were like, like horrible and in this case and this one is is out of all the cases probably the hardest one for us to deal with but the greater good here is the fact that God is trying to prove a point in the heavens God is trying to vindicate his own name that he is worthy to be served not just because he gives earthly things that are good and so in this situation, like the greater good is that God is revealing himself and God is proving himself in this situation and in this evil. And so let's move on to the next story. Um, we're going to look at Joseph. Yeah. And you guys, a lot. 
Yeah, and a lot of you guys, if you've grown up in church, will probably have heard this story, but I have a summary for you, so don't worry if you haven't. The Bible story of Joseph from the book of Genesis is one of heroic redemption and forgiveness. Joseph was the most loved son of his father, Israel. Given the famous robe of many colors, when Joseph reported having dreams of his brothers and even the moon and stars bowing before him, their jealousy of Joseph grew into action. The, bro- the brothers sold him into slavery to a traveling caravan of Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt and sold him to uh, Potiphar, uh, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. In Egypt, the Lord's presence with Joseph enables him to find favor with Potiphar in the keeper of the prison. With God's help, Joseph interprets the dreams of two prisoners, predicting that one of them will be reinstated, but the other one put to death. Joseph then interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, which uh, anticipates seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh recognizes Joseph's God's-given ability and promotes him to the chief administrator of Egypt. The shortage of food in Canaan forces Jacob to send his brothers to buy grain from the Egyptians. Joseph explains that they need not feel guilty for betraying him as it is God's plan for him to be in Egypt to preserve his family. He told them to bring their father and his entire house into Egypt to live in the providence of Goshen because there were five years of famine left. Joseph supplied them with uh, Egyptian uh, transport wagons, new garments, silver, and 20 additional donkeys carrying provisions for their journey. Joseph is then joyously reunited with his son, Joseph. Yes, it's really an amazing story. And I want to read you guys Genesis 50-20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And um, that's Joseph talking there. And it's just such a beautiful redemption story that God used the evil of men. You know, they meant it all for evil, but God used it for good. He meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. Like he provided for the world, the known world, through Joseph's life. Yeah. So we'll get to that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we'll get to that in a second, and I'll talk about like um, that. And then if you still have a question after that, then you can ask. And um, basically, 
like like Hunter is saying, like the the Lord used this situation. Like there was a reason for it. There was a greater good that the evil served. The evil that his brothers did served a greater good. Um, and so the next example we're going to see is Jesus. And I'm not going to give you a summary of Jesus. I assume that um, most of you know, um, you know, the life of Jesus. But we see, like, in the midst of all of the evil that happened from the Pharisees plotting against him to Judas's betrayal to, you know, the brutality of the crucifixion and so many other things. There was such greater good in the midst of that that he was accomplishing. Through the midst of all of that evil. Um, and so it's really... Then, at this point, you say, well, you know, you can look at, you know, these specific stories of Joseph and Job and Jesus and be like, sure, I, I see the sovereignty of God and I, I see that he's working stuff out for a reason. But, you know, does he really, like, do that with all things? You know, and that's the question. Like, is he really doing that for, for all things? In I'm going to read you four verses out of like the 80 that I found. Um, and we'll see what they say. And these basically just prove that God, he's not as passive as we think he is. Passive means that he's not in control. He's just letting things happen. Um. And I will keep disaster upon them, and I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by the plague and poisonous uh, pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Yeah. Like Jesus is actually giving, there, there's evil there that's happening by his will. No, not Jesus. Sorry, God. It's in Deuteronomy, and I, um, basically this is God talking. Uh, it's in Deuteronomy. It's, yeah. Yeah, and so then Exodus 4.11. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? He's basically saying, like, you have a mouth because of me. Like, you know, whether you're mute or you're deaf or, you know, whether you can see or you're blind, like, that's, like, am I not God? And then uh, this is in Judges. And if you guys want these references and stuff, I can give you them and all the other 80. Um, so this is Samson. Uh, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives in 
or among all of our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines, which is like, this is pretty crazy in that culture. Like, you know, he is doing something strange here. Really, I don't even know if it's... Yeah, I mean, these these are non-Jewish people from a different culture, you know, in your world that could be, this could be kind of like you marrying someone who's not a Christian. Like, it's not, why why would you do that? Like, you're, you're unequally yoked, this, this, and not only that, but like of a different culture and that believes completely different things. Like, just just not normal his father and mother did not know that it was from the lord for he was seeking an opportunity against the philistines and at this time the philistines ruled over israel the lord was in control of that in control of that desire he's sovereign again in that situation Exodus 4.21, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Again, God is sovereign. And you can find all kinds of stuff in the Bible where the Lord is really in control as much as that's hard for us sometimes to believe and hard for us to know, to, you know, to really think that in the midst of all that stuff that he is doing things, but he really is. And, um, and the thing is, is that the Lord has a great purpose and a great good that he's trying to accomplish. And um, so I'm going to give you three reasons. Um, these are um, basically not, not all the reasons. These are just potential reasons that I want you guys to have in your mind. Um, is that... Huh? Three reasons. Sorry, yeah, I didn't explain that. Three potential reasons for evil happening. Um, so like, um, I talked about like the greater good, but the history, like more specific ones. And so suffering, um, in the Bible, we can see can be a result of punishment to people who have done bad things. Now I will say this because the Bible frequently discourages the idea, um, that all evil in the world is a result of punishment and also basically we can never know if it's because of that so you should never claim that it is like that is not your place to ever say well god is doing that because you did this and he is uh you know lashing out on you like don't don't ever do that um like you are not in the place of god and you can't say that that's why that's happening in their life um so yeah, but in the Bible, we do see that that does happen. Um, and, uh, and then number three, kind of extend on that. But suffering leads us from self-centeredness to other-centeredness. We go, f- suffering leads us from being focused on ourselves to being focused on other people.
Suffering can take the focus off of us and put it on other people. And so pain, so number three is pain is God's way of getting the attention of unbelievers in a non-threatening way so that they might forget the vanities of this world and consider spiritual things instead and perhaps even repent of sin. And you see this, you know, where people will hit rock bottom and you see it in the Bible and the Lord is out of his grace trying to get their attention and trying to bring them back. And that is a greater good. You know, like he's trying um, to get them back to him um, through whatever means. Um, And so we see that as well. So the last um, couple things, so I'm closing up here, but this one is basically like God is, he, he knows everything. Like he has an infinite understanding of all the things that are happening in the world, of all the things that have happened, all the things that, that will happen, that we will choose to do. And um, he is unfolding this great complex plan and it's just ignorance to think that we could know what that is that we think that we could know that there is some sort of like that we could say oh well that didn't need to happen like really you think that you know in this complex plan that that didn't need to happen and so there was this basically that conclusion that we have little reason to ex- to accept that conclusion that that didn't need to happen like there there is such a complexity to this plan that is unfolding that he is working out in our life that it can be so hard for us to come to grips with, sometimes we don't understand why things happen. And you really got to be okay with that mystery. Like the Bible says that his ways are not our ways, that his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways, like they surpass what we can comprehend. And I, and I know that there is, that leads us back to the place that the Bible so often leads us to is trusting in God. Is having faith in him. And even like in when even when you're in like a situation like Job, like do you still like not curse God and trust him? Like do you still worship him? Do you still love him when your life isn't that great? Because it doesn't have to be. There's nothing promised in the Bible that your life has to be great for God to be good. And I think sometimes we believe subconsciously that if we're a Christian, that everything in our life is going to be great and that we're not going to go through anything bad. And that doesn't happen. And I think that can lead us, that kind of theology leads us down a place where when bad things do happen, 
when people hurt us or when things happen, we're like, well, why did God let this happen? Or like, you know, like you get angry at God and not that it's wrong to have emotions, but we can distance ourselves rather than trusting him. And it's very hard to trust him in those situations. But if you set yourself up for success and having a right view that God is good, that he is worthy outside of the fact that you may not understand what he's doing. And um, I think, so I, I want to read this Romans verse. It's 11, 33 through 36. I know. I almost read Romans 9, which is after Romans 8. But again, it's one of the things that get cut. I had so much, guys. I had to cut a lot out of this message. Um, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Inscrutable means we can't know it. Like it, We can't comprehend it. Like his ways, like we literally cannot comprehend them in our wee little minds. That's what that means. Yeah. Yeah, incomprehend. Thank you, Wendy. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Yeah. You're worthy of it all. Um, and so the last thing I want to end on is sometimes in your life, you go through things and like, you know, I gave a few scenarios at the beginning when things are just like, God, like, why is this happening to me? And, like, it's, like, stuff that really is just, like, hard. Like, your life is, like, crumbling. You feel like everything that you could trust in, everything that, like, you feel like you, when you feel like you've done things right and still things are going wrong, I think sometimes we can get so caught up in the details of our life that we miss sometimes the redemptive value that he's placed on you. That doesn't matter what suffering that you've ever gone or going to go through or have gone through. The fact that he chose you, he made a way for you to be with him. You do not deserve, and I do not deserve that price that he paid to forgive me of my sins so that I could be with him, so that I could find eternal life. I do not deserve that. And so if sometimes you get to a place where you're like, well, why is this happening in life? Sometimes for me, it's good to zoom out and say, but he paid it all for me so that I could be with him. So no matter what I walk through in this life, he placed enough value on me that maybe my life isn't like great right now. Maybe like, you know, this just isn't cool. It's not fair. 
But that, that one, just remember, that doesn't mean he's not in control, and that doesn't mean that he doesn't love you when bad things happen. Because he loves you so much in the greatest good, his ultimate goal. I want you to remember this. It's not so that you can be comfortable. His ultimate goal is so that more people can find eternal life. So if you have to go through some pain so that more people can come to know him, then to him that's a greater good. And I think that sometimes we don't like that. We don't like the complexity of his plan. We don't, we don't like to think about all of that. And this topic is really hard to talk about. It kind of, when you get into it, it's like, it can be discouraging even. But you got to remember that the Lord isn't so focused on the temporary things like we are. He is so eternally focused on you being with him forever and others being with him forever that sometimes we can get so caught up in our own little world that we forget the, the ginormous plan that he's unfolding. So I know today isn't an inspirational message. It's not even... Um, something maybe that it's something that's hard to apply in your life but my goal for tonight and talking about this is I know it's a common thing that we in our mind struggle with and I know more than anything for people that don't believe in Jesus it's something that they struggle with and so hopefully um, you've taken something from this that you've gathered some thoughts from this so that when people say stuff you at least one, you can protect your own heart um, to know that maybe, you know, that God's, he's in control. Like, even though bad things happen, that doesn't mean that God is not real. That doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. That doesn't mean that he, you know, isn't watching over us because he is. But he is, his plan is for a greater good. And sometimes that can mean suffering and evil in the world. And um, so, yeah, I wanted to come back to you, Hunter, though, and say, like, did that, do you have any questions? No, you Yeah? Because I know your question was basically, like, does he just redeem the things that we do? Or does he, like, make them happen? And that was your question. Yeah. Yes, and I think that you can't really have a dogmatic view on that whole area because it, 
it's a combination because we do have free will and sometimes we make choices and he redeems those. But sometimes he actually does make evil happen. Like we read verses in the Bible and I could give you like 40 more where bad things happen and they're actually the will of God. And, um, and I know for us, we're like, oh, that's terrible. Like, we hate sitting with that. But he does both. He, sit, he redeems bad choices that we make and other people make, you know. But he also has a reason for things. Um, it's both. Yeah. Exactly. Tying it all back into this morning, which you won't hear for, but somehow your spirit knew what to say. Um, yes. So anyways, I know this gives you guys probably a lot to think about. Um, and it'll be on the podcast. So if you're like, okay, that was a lot, maybe just go listen to it again. Um, but Wendy has something to say. All right, ask a question. Do you think that there is a difference between his intervention and the Old So, Wendy's question was for the people on the podcast Do I believe that there is a difference between his intervention in the Old Testament versus the New Testament? Intervention meaning the way that he like basically steps in. Um, I think there, there is differences because I was thinking about this this week as I was preparing for this. Um, and I think that basically when theologians talk about this, they always stress the fact that the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. Like some people really struggle with that. That same God that you saw sin judgment on these people is the same God that we serve now. Like you can't get that mixed up. So the way that it changes is that now Jesus covers the wrath of God. Like when he looks at us, he doesn't look at us the same. So that's why you don't see God like, you know, sending judgments like he did because Jesus literally like he paid our debt. That we do stupid things, but we don't face the same judgment that they did because Jesus literally steps in. He is our advocate. And so, to, yes, in today's world, it's different, but that doesn't mean that he's not still sovereign. That doesn't mean that he's still not working um, in our midst um, to make things happen and to, to intervene. So I think in the, the terms of intervention, he is still just as much working as what it talks about um, in the Old Testament, um, you know, all the things. He's still as involved, which just seems so surprising, you know, at times when we um, think about that. But there, his goal is the overall plan, you know, and so that's what we have to zoom out to. Sometimes we get too zoomed in, and you got to zoom out a little bit. So, yeah. You could. I could ask a lot more questions. But who's going to answer those? Yeah, but I need someone else to do the rest of the series because I have questions. And that's what 
<clears throat> that's basically what I started out with saying is basically like this is a hard topic and what I'm covering is just enough to hopefully give you some ammunition so you aren't completely defenseless. But this isn't the, f the full thing. Like, you know, you could spend a lifetime um, learning more about all of this stuff. This, like I said, the arguments and the debates are so deep on this topic. It literally has been written about and argued about since after Jesus. You know, there's writings after writings. These, you know, guys that lived 2,000 years ago, you know, from the early church um, writing about this stuff. So it's been, it's been evident for a long time. It's been a problem for a long time that we struggle with. And so, yeah. Well, guys, I'm going to pray. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Lord, I have come to my place in my life where I can't deny your goodness. And I can't deny the evidence that I see all around me. I can't deny how real you've made yourself to me. And that alone gives me faith in you. Gives me faith that I can trust you even if my life isn't going great. Even when I go through times of suffering, even when things happen, that I know that you're still good. Like it, it really doesn't matter because you, man, you made a way for me to be with you. And that is the ultimate gift that I could ever be given. And not only that, but you're good outside of that. You so often pour out your blessings on us. So Jesus, I just pray for these students that you would empower them to sh when they talk to other people to be able to, um, to have confidence in your goodness, to have confidence in the gospel, to have confidence in who you are. Though the questions may be hard, I pray that tonight they have been given some um, structures of thought, they've been given some ammunition um, and ways to defend um, their own heart, their own mind to defend, um, and not just to defend but to hopefully draw others to you, to answer genuine concerns that people have. Genuine concerns that people really do struggle with this stuff when they're, when they're first coming to faith. And I pray that in this room, Lord, that you would use these in this room to um, be able to pull people to you, to be able to draw them to you, to build them to be that influence, to, to maybe not answer the questions perfectly, but to try. <clears throat>